You're listening to the Cannabis Investing Network. Before we begin, a short disclaimer. The full disclaimer follows at the end of this episode. This podcast is a general communication and is being provided for entertainment and information purposes only. It is educational in nature and is not designed to be a recommendation for any specific investment strategy, plan, feature, or other purpose. Please enjoy responsibly. Hello and welcome back to the Cannabis Investing Network podcast. My name is Manish and I am here today with the man himself, the legend. His name is Abby. How are you doing, Abby? Hey, Manish. I'm doing well, man. Magic Manish over here. Always with the yeah, nice layups on the names. That's right. <laughs> so uh, today is an episode that has been ruminating in my head for a while and it's going to be about the difference between being a long-term investor and between being a short-term trader. And the reason why um, I think that's interesting to talk about is that because in order to invest in the cannabis industry, you have to be somewhere in between. And this is something that I have constantly been asking myself um, is, you know, Am I re- am I an investor? Or am I a trader? And we're going to go into kind of these things and what they mean. And we're also going to talk about um, Warren Buffett, who did his annual general meeting for Berkshire Hathaway. It was the first one done virtually, um, and you know he is the ultimate long term investor. Uh, but what did he do recently? What are the big moves that he made, and, and how is he feeling about the economy in general? Um, and, and Abby, all of this is is coming down to really this kind of essential question, right? When you're thinking about how to invest, especially right now in the COVID era, should you be thinking short-term or should you be thinking long-term? Um, and there's obviously no right answer to that question, but we're going to go into the different ways of thinking. For sure. And you know what? I, and I think I think you're right. There is no right answer. Um, and even like there's the world prior to COVID, post-COVID, during COVID, I would say that I'm going to say, take the stance that both are important. You know, you need to have a good short-term understanding as well as a great long-term view. You need to know why you're in a stock. You need to have good sell discipline. Uh, you need to know why you're investing in a company. Uh, you need to know why you're investing in a sector, industry, et cetera, right? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I know I'm investing because my cab driver told me about it. That's the best reason why. That's why people buy there dividend growers, right? My TTC, dri- <laughs> like, my TTC driver was telling me about dividend growers and that was growers. That's a Warren Buffett, so, Warren Buffett line, by the way. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. So, so the, the question, I guess, is, um, and and here's why I find this really interesting because Abby, you know, my background in commercial real estate, um, you do get people who literally a lot of people who buy properties um, and they never sell. They buy investment properties for the yield that they can get from rental income or the potential yield. Um, and, you know, they'd never want to sell it. They want to pass it on to their kids, right? So that to me is like the the extreme example of a long-term investor. Somebody who only purchases, you know, if you were to purchase only entire businesses and you were to never sell them, and the reason you're purchasing them is for the earnings you can get from that asset, right? So I, I can really understand that mindset. Um, and Abby, you've you have a lot of experience in venture investing, right? So mm-hmm. tell me about how the mindset is different for venture investing. Well, venture investing, I mean, really boils down to a story, right? You have to invest. You invest behind the people. You invest behind a sector, and you invest behind the story. Like things have to be compelling. You can't go into a venture investment being like, well, what how, what have you guys done so far? Or, you know, what are your earnings? Because most venture companies don't have earnings, right? If you're if you're talking true, yeah, they true, may not true, even have revenue. They may not even have a business model, right? It could literally right. be just an idea. And so that's where that, that's what that's where um, venture investing differs quite a bit. So I mean, I don't think venture capitalists or private equity investors or venture investors, whatever you want to call them, I don't think they're short-term investors. I just think that they can't rely on the same fundamentals that your typical blue chip portfolio manager can rely on, right? There aren't these metrics. There aren't these 
uh, proven year after year quarters or sorry, proven year after year revenues, profits, et cetera, or even trading patterns that you can look at. When you're looking at venture investing, you're really, 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 really betting on the jockey and not the horse. Got it. Okay. So it, it's it's more uh, management focused as opposed to just looking at the asset. Right. Because in Whereas, some cases, there might not even be an asset or the asset could be ill-defined, right. right? The asset could be management. You know, for instance, like, look look at Elon Musk, all right? Elon Musk is a serial entrepreneur who's had tremendous success in various different industries. I'm, sh- I'm pretty sure if Elon Musk went to any industry, he would be able to raise capital for it, right? Uh, for instance, he took on the auto industry. He didn't have any auto background before. He was an engineer. Uh, he took on the aerospace industry. He was, he was right. I, mean, I guess he was technically a rocket scientist, but you bet on Elon, right? You're not betting on anything else and the asset becomes Elon. That's venture investing. However, having said that though, that's not a short-term view, right? That's a long-term view. You just don't have the fundamentals that you would typically have in, for example, GM, right? GM versus Tesla five years ago, GM was much a, a significantly better buy. Um, Tesla now, is a little bit. I mean, it's a little bit rocky right now with everything going on, but it's still a very. It's a, it's a more the, uh, company. I heard somebody tweet that the uh, stock price is too high. Yeah, I mean, hey, you never you, you never know what's going on in the background. But that's that's your uh, that's your jockey right there. Your asset. Well, no, that's not that's not your jockey anymore because now he's built Tesla. Right, right now, right now, yeah, I get, it, I get. Right. It. Now there's cars that are on the road, etc. Yeah, but Abby, also one thing interesting, you said it. GM's a bet was a better buy. I guess it it you know the point is it depends right it depends what your what your exactly what your strategy is right? right if you are buying something for the earnings or a dividend for sure yeah then for sure that that's an easier thing to buy because you can see it but if you're buying something for the potential growth and growing into it then it's a different story right right so, so when you're looking look, look, right. when you're looking at that yeah, look, you really want to differentiate between growth and value especially in venture. Right. Okay. So, so we'll get into that a little bit more, but what I really want to talk about is defining kind of long-term investing, defining short-term trading, and then acknowledging that, you know, in reality, life is going to be somewhere in the middle, right? I, so yeah. and how, I, do we, I think, how do we right. incorporate these? Yeah, for sure. And sorry, Manish, not to cut you off there, but I think for this sake, the best way that we should just sort of build the premises, let's look at publicly traded companies that are trading on an exchange. And let's just look at short-term investing versus short-term trading using a broad scope of sectors. All right. Like not, not private equity versus, you know, public investing, um, not real estate. Yeah. Yeah. No, for, for sure. Right. For sure. For sure. Fair, fair enough. So I, I guess the, the, um, and why I wanted to bring, you know, Warren Buffett into this is that, you know, he is the, um, ultimate example of the long-term investor. You know, he very famously says, uh, our favorite holding period is forever. Right. Um, but getting into his meeting that he had on this Saturday, uh, this was a really big deal because he has not spoken publicly many times since uh, COVID started. Uh, at the very beginning, he was interviewed on uh, uh, CNBC. This was in like the end of February. Um, and he had a couple of comments, I think, in mid-March. But really since then, he's been basically radio silent. So this was a really big deal because it allowed people to, to you know, see in his own words what he feels is going on. Um, so that's why I want to recap kind of what he talked about and what the big takeaways were and then how that relates to what we're talking about which is short and long-term trading and investing okay so so first of all let's just talk about the actual meeting um overall i would say it was actually uh i think it underscored how dire the situation is you know i've been saying look i'm sitting in cash uh even though the markets have rallied i don't believe it you know the last episode was don't believe the hype um, and in some ways, you know, hearing Buffett speak really gave me a lot of comfort because he started with a long, um, soliloquy about Americans and American life and the, Amer- the greatness of the American economy. Um, but actually, you know, it, it was a lot of positive, uh, sort of talk in the long term of America and, and the engine that is America, but it was because the rest of, of what he was talking about was pretty bleak. And I think it goes to show you that um, he is, 
definitely not looking at the market right now as a bargain. Um, and, and, and he mentioned that several times. So my reading of it was it was a pretty somber event. Um, and it looks like he's being patient uh, in order to deploy his capital. So that was my big takeaway from, from what I saw in the general mood. Right. But it's also important to note that he's not sitting in all cash, right? He's still invested. So he's not selling. That's either. a good point. Yeah. That's that's a good point. So let's talk about that. And this is where I kind of got the idea for this episode. The huge, huge news was that Warren Buffett sold his entire airline stakes. Okay. So they own the four big US airlines and they owned them in a pretty big amount. I think they spent about $8 billion buying these airlines. And they sold the entire position in April uh, at roughly a 20% loss um, to their to their cost. And, they're, and you know, they've owned it for some time. So he said, basically, um, that industry is already really tough. And he feels it's going to be underwater for three to four years. Um, and ultimately, I think what he was alluding to was that the world has changed for these companies. And I don't want to be, I don't want to own that business anymore. I don't want to be in that business anymore. So, I mean, absolutely massive news for him to dump an entire industry in one month. For sure. For sure. And um, I mean, look, I know you started the podcast off with a quote saying his favorite holding period is forever. Um, it's definitely not the case. Uh, I, I, airline industry. Apparently, apparently for the airlines, his, his favorite holding period is never. <laughs> well, he, he was holding the airlines before, right? That's what I'm saying. He's, he's, he wishes he never had. Oh, really? Okay. Gotcha. Got, oh, sorry. That's what you were saying earlier. I thought you, thought you said that. That's what you're saying uh, now. Um, yeah. I mean, like, look, the airline industries are very competitive. It's, it's not an industry that that I know too too well, and uh, I, it, it was weird to see him say that because I I mean maybe with COVID everything is going to change, but uh, we'll we'll see. Like I mean, as a long term investor, I mean, what are your thoughts? Like, are you you don't hold any airlines, do you? No, I've, I've never held any airlines. I don't know anything about airlines. Um, what I found interesting about him doing that, I, I mean, one, it's a big move. Right, that is a big, big move um, from a a guy who, um, you know, for him to take a loss on that. I mean, he really had to look down the barrel and just say, you know what, I don't see it, and I don't want to stick around for it. You know, I'm out. Right. So, um, I, I guess what what I found interesting is. You know, from from his perspective, how does he make that decision? And then, you know, in my example, I was giving you somebody buys something and holds it forever, right? Uh, buys a business and owns it forever, a piece of property owns it forever. Um, you know, even though they like to be long term investors, they will still periodically, you know, look at something and say, you know what, this didn't make sense. I don't like where this is headed. I'm out. Right, so just because he's a long-term investor doesn't mean he's not doesn't cut his you know making trades. Right. Yeah, exactly. yeah, it doesn't mean he's ma- not making making changes. Right, for sure. Uh, so, and so I that think, to me was, was really fascinating. Sure, and I, and I think like look, Warren Buffett is your true value investor. He's a portfolio manager. He looks for value stocks. He looks for dividend growers. That's what that's what it is. You know, you don't like uh, Berkshire Hathaway is not like uh, an active or sorry, it's not like uh, an alternative strategy or it's not. Um, a small cap strategy or anything like that. But having said all that, you know, they still, they're not immune to what goes on in the market. And so, you know, they still have to classify their holdings the same way as most people do, where it's, uh, you've got defensive sectors, you've got sensitive sectors, you've got cyclical sectors. And just for, for people who don't know what they are, a defensive sector basically includes like industries that are essentially immune to economic cycles. Right. So you take your typical business cycle. Um, defensive sectors are sort of immune to like the peaks and the valleys. They kind of tend to operate the way that they uh, operate. Um, a good example would be like healthcare, utilities, consumer defensives, 
Um, and then you got cyclical sectors, which are like uh, industries that are significantly impacted by economic shifts, right? And those are like basic materials, commodities, um, financial services, real estates, like those are all impacted by the business cycle or the economic cycle. Uh, and then you've right. got like sensitive cycles, which are some which sort of ebb and flow with the overall economy, and they're not so severely impacted. They're kind of like down the middle. So, I mean, when Warren's looking at all this, he's got to consider what sector it's in, how the sector is going to do, what's the long-term outlook for the sector. I mean, look, listen, he could have entered the airline industry 20, 25 years ago. You never, you, we don't know when his inception period was, right? Oh, no, um, they got in, they got in pretty recently. It's, it's, he'd been actually against airlines for a long time. Um, mm-hmm. and they just got in the last few years. Oh, okay. Okay. I mean, so maybe, maybe they, maybe they just caught the top of a, like top, top of a cycle, right? It's, it's tough to say. And, um, well, I mean, the airline industry got got ravished by like a once in a lifetime pandemic, right? I right. Mean- exactly. Exactly. And so this was a black swan event. So what do you do for that, right? Yeah, he's a long term investor, but you've got to cut your losses. Does that make him a short term trader? Absolutely not, right? I would define, I would personally define short term trading a little bit differently. Uh, I'm not saying that you said he was a short term trader. <laughs> yeah. So, so look, I mean, this, this is the meat of the episode that I, I was really wanting to talk about, which is that I guess the way I'm looking at it, uh, and you can go back and I've listened to Warren Buffett interviews for like years and years and years. I mean, I think I've heard almost every interview he's done and he really doesn't change the way he talks about investing, right? Like it's the same thing he learned from Benjamin Graham, which is that uh, investing is all about earnings, right? And the earnings either come today or they come in the future. But basically, when you buy a bond, right? W- when you buy a, a GIC or a bond, you know, you, you know, it's printed on the bill what the coupons are going to be every month, right? It's, it's printed. You know exactly what the earnings are going to be, and then you get your principal back at the end of the bond, right? So he views stocks as the same way. He looks at a company and says it's the exact same thing. There's basically earnings that happen every month. The, the trouble is we just don't know what those numbers are. It's not like a bond where it's printed on it. We have to figure that out for ourselves, right? right? So one thing he talked a lot about in this AGM was uncertainty. And you hear that word a lot. But what, I, what dawned on me is how he looks at uncertainty is how well am I able to figure out the earnings or the earnings potential of this business, right? And COVID basically is a storm which makes the outlook hazier than it's ever been, right? And in some businesses like the airlines, the outlook just looked so bad. It was like, you know what? I'm out. I I can't tell whether this is a good investment or not. And I'd rather take the loss than stick around and find out, right? So that's how I think Buffett thinks about invest investing. That's how he thinks about earnings. And that's how he thinks about uncertainty, right? And another interesting point, Abby, was that in Q1, even mm-hmm. when things hit the fan in March, he did not deploy capital. He didn't do buybacks of Berkshire. He wasn't really buying much. Um, they basically sat on their hands. Okay. And part of that was they said, look, that that period, that fall off a cliff that happened in sort of March 20th, March 23rd, um, it lasted only a very short period of time. It snapped back, right? So we never really got to evaluate things at those prices. Um, but basically, he just said, he said, yeah, prices are down, but I don't think that they're super attractive, you know, at the level that they're at because you know, the, the certainty on earnings is also really down, right? So I don't know that I'm getting a really good deal right now. And I don't want to put, I'm, you know, I'm sort of putting words in his mouth now, so I want to be careful about that. But that's kind of what I felt he was, he was saying is, is that the earnings uncertainty is so high that um, we can't say, or we're not saying that these are very attractive levels. We'd rather just wait and have the money in the bank. 137 billion, by the way, it's in nice, the bank. Uh, nice little pocket change there. Yeah, you, I mean, you get you get a couple guys who have that, and it's pretty soon as real money, right? Okay, there billions. 
So, so I mean that, you know, I really have been thinking about that the last few days, just digesting that. And then I've been thinking to myself, like, how do I feel about the cannabis market? Right. How do I feel about the uncertainty of the current outlook? Right. Um, where do I feel there is some certainty actually on, on earnings, right? That's really what I've been mulling over and trying to define for myself because I want to think about where, where to put my money, um, on the, you know, on the next go around. Okay. And what did you sort of come up with? Well, look, I mean, this is kind of, kind of what, what the, the crux of the issue is today, right? Is, is, you know, do we do we look at short-term strategies? Or do we look at long-term strategies? Right, and ultimately, what what I'm feeling is that in the cannabis markets today, I'm very uncertain as to how sales will perform in 2020 um, and even going into 21 um, with regards to how just cannabis sales will perform. I mean, in Ontario, in Canada, in various other markets, right? So because remember, um, everything we just learned about cannabis and cannabis sales and retail is now flipped on its head, right? Uh, the whole thing was, Abba, we had this debate many times about cannabis dispensaries. And for whatever reason, people love to spend a lot of money in the dispensary. They didn't like to spend the money online, Okay. But now people are being forced to change and they're being forced to order online or from the dispensary, they have they order online anyway and just pick it up, right? right? So how will behavior change? How will the sales data be different for March or April in Canada, right? Um, are people going to shift from retail to online? Like these are all things I, I don't have any clarity on. Well, so here, here's one thesis. This is again, a speculative thesis that you and I chatted about before, but when we first met, we talked about this and I was always a big proponent of online. You were always a big proponent of, of retail. And now it's kind of shifted where you, you know, you're being forced to order online. Now, I think that there's going to be a certain population that actually prefer to have it online, right? They're going to experience it for the first time. They're going to have the online experience. Who knows? Maybe they'll like it. You know, they click, they pay with their credit card. It shows up at their mailbox. This is again in Canada. Um, or they go pick, maybe maybe they do curbside pickup, but most people I, I would assume would opt to have it delivered right to their house if they had the option, right? Um, and, I, and I think that is going to impact the dispensary model. I mean, how greatly? Obviously, I don't have a crystal ball, so I can't tell you. Um, but, but I think like, you know, with COVID, consumer behavior is going to change. And you're perfectly right to have this sort of lens for cannabis because a lot of people don't have that lens for cannabis, right? A lot of people look at cannabis and say, okay, that's a speculative play. That's a venture play. Warren Buffett would never invest in this. So why should I look at it from Warren Buffett's perspective, right? But I think um, you and I, we look at it from a perspective of, okay, this is a venture play, a speculative play right now. But in 10 years from now, you know, it's going to be one of the larger industries. And you and I both have that conviction. I, I think you still have that conviction, right? <laughs> just, yeah, I don't well, put words well, in your I, mouth. Yeah. yeah. Well, I I would say it's even like where we are today. A lot of these businesses have, you know, you, we can see now the results of their model, right? I mean, when you know, even a year ago, uh, it was very difficult. I, there was no real good results to look at because you know, legal, it went legal in October of eighteen. Very so limited rollout. Look at there was nothing to look at. Not even that there's any results to look at. You were buying off of, you were basically buying off of relative comparisons, right? You were looking at a valuation and saying, okay, this licensed producer's license sold for $50 million. I'm going to use that as my benchmark. Okay, these guys have two licenses. That makes them worth $100 million. That's how you were. Yeah, doing. exactly. We, we were, well, there's a bunch of different ways to throw at the wall, right? Right. That was just a very anecdotal scenario. Yeah, exactly. And, and and that's where the conversation about funded capacity comes into play and stuff like that. It, it's all, you know, it's all trying to figure out any metric to rationalize why something is valued this way. Well, right? so you can actually, is, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. You can actually see now, like we actually have some clarity on how the business models are working. Right. Well, hold on. We, we've got, before we get into that, sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. I know that you go, but I, would, I don't mean to cut you off because before we get into that, I do want to say one thing. Now, the whole topic is short-term trading versus long-term investing. 
right? Yes. We were both long-term investors when we came to the cannabis space, but we both took it, we, we capitalized on short-term events. So you're right. There were no fundamentals that could direct you in a direction that Warren Buffett would be comfortable saying, I'm going to put some money in here, right? There was no uh, earnings. There was no coupon. Uh, there was no dividends. In some cases, there was even no, no revenue, right? But what there was, was on the capital markets was there was momentum trading. There was technical analysis, all these things that, you know, you, these are strategies that you really can't um, deploy or uh, sorry, apply as a, as a true fundamentalist. So you had to sort of use them in cannabis, right? So for momentum trading, uh, I'm not sure if you did this or not, but this is the first time, you know what, let's define what momentum trading firstly is. It's sure. basically a strategy where, um, where you buy a stock that's sort of rising really rapidly, right? And so you buy it in the hopes that, you know, you can ride the wave and then you try to get out before it shifts. Okay. And basically the goal here is to work with volatility. You look for buying opportunities in short-term uptrends um, before stocks start to lose momentum. That's the quote. And when I first started, I was like, well, what does that even mean? Like, you know, what does lose momentum mean? What does gain momentum mean? Right. And I had to, I, I asked around a, a couple of people and there's actually momentum indicators. Okay. And one of the ones that you and I always talk about is trading volume, right? Sure. And basically, you know, volume doesn't, it's not, it's not, it's not like the volume on your radio. It's like literally trading volume means how many uh, shares were traded over a certain period of time, right? The more shares that are traded, that means there's more eyeballs on the stock. That means there's more um, buyers and sellers. That means if the, if the company starts to catch a bid, which means if the price starts to increase, if it has a large volume, it tends to do better right? That's a strategy that you and I both, I don't know if you applied. I, I think you did, right? You, you were using that strategy for a bit too, right? Well, I don't. So, okay. So I've never really been in the, the camp of, oh, this thing might catch momentum. Let's jump into it. Right. Um, but, and this is, this was very helpful for me is to learn things like why trading volume matters because, you know, coming from the real estate world, we don't really think about that, but in the stock market world, it really does matter, right? Oh, so for true. example, bringing it back to Warren Buffett, he was able to sell $6.5 billion worth of airline stock in a couple of weeks, right? You need to have the volume to support that kind of action. Um, and you need to have actually so much more volume so that you alone don't tank the stock just by selling, right? right. So if you look at most cannabis stocks, they just don't have that kind of volume, even even some of the really good ones, right? They're lucky if they can get a couple of million dollars traded in a day. So right, but I mean, I th I think a million shares or a million dollars worth in the cannabis industry is like a billion in like a more mature industry, right? The yeah, may maybe. I'm I'm not saying it's one to one. What what I'm no, saying no. is that if if you're like a big fund and you're trying to manage a lot of money, like you're managing tens of millions of dollars. That might be something you have to look at, right? Hey, if I buy, if I put ten million dollars into, you know, Medifarm Labs, right? What am I going to do with the price? Can they? Can I support that, right? Because if I go in and try to buy that all in one day, you know, the price is probably going to double on me, right. right? And you just can't support that level of volume. So right. that's something and you have to look at. Yeah, exactly. It's definitely something you have to look at. But what you can, that's another thing that you can sort of look at, um, which is also another technical analysis thing. And I, I'm not a technician by any means, but um, this is stuff that I started learning. And one is called rate of change, right? And rate of change just basically measures the speed at which the stock price is changing. And so that's another good way to see, okay, can I get in and out or can I buy into this without changing? too much, right? Usually when volume starts increasing, then all these other indicators start to make sense. If you have low volume, you can't really use these other indicators. But let's say if you've got large volume and the stock, you know, there's a lot, lot there's a, a lot of movement happening, but the stock is trading sideways. Then if you, you know, if you as a, as a big buyer come in and start buying it, then you're going to change that trend, right? Kind of like, this is a bad, this is a terrible example um, because it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, relay on volume as most as it does to brand but remember when constellation entered the space they entered it in sort of tranches right the first tranche that they entered gave fire to canopy and the second tranche that they entered um they got less shares because the, the share price was so high right if you take that strategy and rate of change 
in your $10 million Metafarm example, if you have enough volume and you see the rate of change in the stock price is starting to increase, you can start buying in tranches without really losing too much on the upside. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, I think the Constellation example is a bad example, but your, your point is you watch that that rate of change to get in. Yeah, exactly. The Constellation example and, is sort of just yeah, yeah, sort no, of to I, more I, touch I on it, but, tranches as opposed to the rate of change. Yeah, I mean, look, what I would say is that, like, and, and I've always said this, I try to aggressively ignore technical analysis. Um, but, look, I, I mean, I don't like buying something just because, oh, I think this might pop or go up 10 or 20%. Right, like I, I just don't like doing that. That's not my style. However, I, I have to acknowledge that by learning, you know, some technical uh, indicators, and not like RSI or moving averages or stuff like that. But I mean, understanding what can uh, be a uh, overhang on a stock, right? And we did a whole episode on that actually on on uh, this is months ago, but on you know four reasons why your stock might go down. And just learning what those overhangs could be, uh, that actually really helped me uh, in determining entry points, right? Because but, at the end of the day, no matter how good something is, you know, if you're not buying it at an attractive price, you, you very possible you never make money on it. Right. See, entry points are good, but exit points are just as good. And I think RSI and both MACD are important indicators to at least know about when you're looking at really a speculative industry, right? Yeah, and, and yeah, listen, fair enough. Again, I, I just aggressively ignore some of that. Um, now, that being said, the stuff that I have paid attention to, I have learned a lot from. So like, for example, volume. Um, right now, like today, actually, TrueLeave uh, spiked like 4 or 5%, right? And I think it's, if I'm guessing, I think it's because they announced that their earnings are going to come out in the next you know, 11 days or something, right? And they usually have a nice little run before that. Um so you look at it and you go, wow, okay, it's up 5% in a day. That's pretty good. But then when you look at the volume, you see the volume is actually quite low compared to their average volume. So the volume is maybe only a third um, of their average volume, right? So why is that concerning? That's concerning because, um, yes, it looks like, you know, when you, when you have a, a pop up in price, but on low volume, it's not really that sustainable in my opinion, because um, you moved that much on volume because you didn't have that many sellers today, right? But yeah, and this, yeah. what ends up happening is the spread between the bid and the ask starts widening, right? And that's why the price you get these jumps on, on low volumes. Oh, okay, interesting. I, I I actually didn't know that. Yeah, that, I mean that just logically makes sense, right? Yeah, if you start keeping a like if you want to start like looking at if you go back and look at your true leaf today just look at this like look at all the trades that happened today and look at the spread between the bid and the ask and you'll see it'll start to widen um if volume is declining and the price is still going up right and what that means is though that means that can turn on you just as quickly yeah it can go the other way pretty fast right okay so so uh to get back into sort of wrapping up buffett's points from from the agm um, he kept talking about, and by the way, there, there's not many takeaways. Like he, he was pretty, it was actually a shorter meeting than usual. And a lot of it, he focused on, you know, the long term. if you put a dollar into the market a hundred years ago, you know, it, it would be worth this today. And it was like 120 times what you put in or something. Right. So just showing the incredible engine of, of growth that was America and, and saying, look, this will still be here long after I'm gone. Um, but he kept referring to the high option value of money. And, you know, when people ask me, well, why did I sell my portfolio? Um, that's kind of in some way what I was thinking about. Just the fact that, look, having just cash in the bank, if there is a new paradigm established, which I truly believe there will be, um, I want to be able to have a clean slate uh, even though I took some losses, I want to have a clean slate and be able to decide where to put the money, right? So bringing it back to cannabis, Abby, you and I have a bet going on what sales are going to be in Canada in 2020, right? And the under over was $3 billion, right? Last year was $1.25. This I, I year- I should put an asterisk and, and have like a clause, you know, no black swan events. Well, you have a force major clause. Yeah. 
to help you get out of it. But look, obviously, you know, the, the bet's basically out the window right now, right? But, you know, what I'm thinking is the run rate that we had in January and February was about $1.8 billion. Um, That's just the run rate, right? So I still think we, we probably would have scaled into something, you know, around 2 to $2.5 billion, probably closer to 25 Now there's a big question mark, right? So we don't know what the March and April sales numbers will look like. But the question is, is Ontario still going to allow a bunch more stores to open or will that get delayed? What kind of sales will we see on the 2.0 products? How much will that grow the pie? Um, How will people's cannabis consumption and purchasing habits change, right? And Yes, people are ordering more online, but or- online's a tiny portion of the business. So um, I think we'll be closer to $2 billion, give or take, for, for uh, 2020. Um, but I'm very uncertain on that. Like, I don't know, right? So that's what really gives me pause in trying to go out and, and buy, you know, determine what the value of these companies is. I just don't know what the sales are going to be like. And remember, this was supposed to be the big ramping year. This was supposed to be the year we opened way more stores and helped people get to profitability, right? And not saying it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen this year as much. It's going to get pushed a lot to next year. Yeah, I mean, you know, when 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 you when you look at that, like it's still, it's they're still compelling numbers, like. 2019 sales was 1.1 billion. If you're uh, if you're using a rough estimation, taking COVID into consideration, and all the slowdowns that are coming with it, and you're still coming to like a uh, a two billion dollar number. Like obviously you're forecasting, but still a two billion dollar um, sales number. That's still a massive growth from last year with a pandemic, right? So it goes to show you that you know there is demand for this product. It goes to show you that. Um, if you are a fundamental investor, even though the companies might not yet be in production or sorry, in profitability, um, you're in a, in a, in a industry or a sector that's facing or that's facing insane growth, even with all these headwinds that it's facing. Right. Great, great growth and great resilience. Right. The fact that in the face of a pandemic, you know, the, probably the largest economic shock we've ever seen in our lifetimes People are still going to buy weed. Exactly. I mean, that is the beauty of this industry. People are willing to go out of their house and go pick it up or go, or, you know, or even order it online or whatever, but people want their cannabis products. Right. Right. Whereas, you know, a lot of venture investing is people come up with a cool new idea. And the question is, are people going to like it? Can we sell it to people? Can we reach the people? Right. Cannabis, we know people want cannabis products. You know, it's just there's other elements we have to look at, right? So, so actually, to that point, Abby, I, I made a list here because I was thinking to myself, what is a good long-term investment in cannabis? Okay, and remember, when I say long-term investment, I'm talking about earnings, right? So, um, and, and by the way, you asked me before what I came up with in terms of uh, thinking about the industry. I think right now the only company you can you can really buy on an earnings basis is is essentially just true leave i mean true leaves earnings are just absolutely smashing it uh and the data that keeps coming out from florida just keeps getting bigger and bigger um and, and i'm mostly out of i think i'm fully out of true leave right now uh but uh you know there's some overhangs you know with with um her husband's trial getting pushed now to october um and there's actually a case being heard tomorrow the flora the flory grown case which uh challenges vertical integration in florida and uh they're they're hearing it by zoom which is pretty interesting um but if that case goes through i mean if that guy actually wins and they dismantle vertical integration that would hugely change truly's business model so mm-hmm. uh that's enough of a reason for me to wait and and be patient you know with all the all the covid stuff um but i just want to lay out you know this is in my mind, what can make a good long-term investment in cannabis? Okay, so, so here's some I, of the. I just want to give you the contrary to that. I mean, like, look, TrueLeaf is a great sure. investment. Don't get me wrong. Um, this is kind of this is why I don't think that there are too many good long-term investments in cannabis because if you, even if you take you know an all-star like TrueLeaf, 
they are susceptible to so many regulation changes. Um, 100%. On top of that, everything else that's going on, that it just kind of makes, you know, how do you define long-term, right? Are you talking about one year? Are you talking about five years? Are you talking about 10 years? Are you talking about forever? Um, vertical integration is, you know, the reason that TrueLeaf has such a big foothold in Florida. If they get rid of that and phase it out within like two, three years or, what, or however, however they decide to do it, completely dismantles um, TrueLeaf as as a company right like uh, as the company it is today at least right the company will have to change I, drastically it fundamentally changes their business model i mean their operations actually wouldn't change that much right i just think their returns would change that that would be the biggest impact right but i mean eventually you know um once you remove vertical integration you're going to then start seeing specialization happen and truly is going to have to start developing their brand um in order to sort of compete right they're not going to be able to compete on every single aspect of the value chain uh, or the supply chain, sorry. And so, you know, with that, when I when I whenever I look at the cannabis industry, um, I can't really look at it from a long term lens because even though I do believe in the industry long term, I think that you know the growth numbers we just talked about from sales, even facing a pandemic, are still double what they were last year, or at least forecasting. Um, the the industry or the sector is is uh, facing so many changes, right? That the slightest thing could just sort of throw off any investment thesis that you have. So when I do look at long-term investing, totally. right, I try to look at cannabis as, as if it was any other industry. And that's why, you know, that's why you and I both really like extraction, even though extraction sort of out of favor right now, we still really like extraction. Um, that's why I wasn't the biggest fan of retail, right? Even though you've, you know, I've, I've been proven wrong basically. And you you're, you're always wanting to let me know that uh, while retail does. <laughs> But uh, text Abby at three in the morning sometimes <laughs> just to remind him. <laughs> hey man, just uh, just so you know you're wrong about that retail call. <laughs> but 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 like but you see like that's why I think when it comes to long term investing, um, it does make sense. Can you have a long term holding period forever? Absolutely not. Not in the cannabis space. You know you've got to be mindful and you've got to shift. You've got to take some money off the table. You got to put some back in, right? And just like what you're doing. Yeah. So so great points, right? And and look to your point about. Um, you know, true leave and the fact that, you know, even if the company does everything right, it's still susceptible to the, to, you know, the, the governor of Florida or the people of Florida or the courts of Florida trying to pass some kind of law or change something or whatever. And that's why I always say get paid for uncertainty. So, mm-hmm. you know, even when you look at true leave, you know, you go, okay, if there's, you know, there's less certainty than a lot of other things, but, um, you know, you want to demand a higher yield and, and how that how that basically emulates it when you're talking about earnings is that, um, you know, when you look at, okay, I think this is what they can earn this year, um, the multiple you put on that for your valuation, you have to pick something that gives you more of a, a return, right? So me getting a 10% return on TrueLeave, um, you know, if I could get something close to that you know, with a, with a bank, then, well, maybe truly doesn't make sense. Right. So you have to either demand a higher uh, threshold for, for yields, or you have to expect that, yeah, I'm going to get 10% this year, but I'll get 20% next year and, and so on and so on. Right. Like that's how it kind of manifests. That's how I think about it. And one of the problems is if you only look at cannabis, and this is the only industry you've ever looked at, um, you know, before when people were putting 20 and 30 times PE multiples on things. Um, that's why, you know, you and I first bonded Abby talking about how egregious, um, you know, the PE multiples were, you know, people were putting 30 and 40 and 50 multiples to justify crazy, crazy numbers, which didn't make any sense. Yeah. In some cases they were putting multiple, uh, they still were like even back in February, they were putting multiples on top line revenue. Yeah. But that, that's not the end of the world. If, you know, because sometimes it's 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 just easier and cleaner to measure it that way. Like, hey, two times, three times revenue. Oh no, no, sorry, um, sorry, sorry. The multiples were like ridiculous. Is what I meant. To yeah, when they put the huge point. numbers like on the on the top line. times top line revenue. Yeah, yeah totally. It's crazy. twenty-one it's totally sales. Crazy. I think you and I both know what company we're talking about here. <laughs> I, I actually don't remember. Canopy, canopy, right? BMO put out that. Yeah, uh, can- oh yeah. yeah, I remember we had that whole. And it was like that was like that was literally like two like a month before COVID happened, and we were and I we were like, really, really, we're past yeah, this in this industry. For sure. Yeah, for sure, nonsensical. So, so look, I mean, coming to the end here, 
Um, oh, sorry. I was going to define what makes good long-term investing criteria for cannabis. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if you look at my two favorite markets right now, number one is Illinois. Number two is Florida. Okay. You can, those are kind of interchangeable. Um, Illinois is early stage recreational. Uh, Florida is late stage medical or mature medical. Okay. Uh, they say medical, the, the tipping point's about 1% of the population. So in a big state like Florida, Florida's 20 million people. If you get 200,000 active patients, uh, then you have a good amount of penetration there and you can, you can actually earn a pretty good return. Okay. So Florida for reference is about 340,000 patients. So it's about one and a half, 1.6% of the population. Uh, and it'll probably be about 2% by the end of the year. So it's really in a great stage. Um, and then Illinois is, is fully recreational as of January 1st of this year. So brand new market, but both markets where sales are just booming and, Ultimately, what you find is that these are limited license states. So these are states where it's very difficult to get a license for anything, whether it's retail, cultivation, extraction, whatever. But each license is therefore very valuable. And what happens is, even if you're just in a, if you if you're just an okay or a decent operator, um, you're going to do pretty well because you're going to have a rising tide kind of lifting. Um, all boats, right? Mm-hmm. The other thing is, how is the adoption of the program? What is the strength of the black market? Um, and how, not only the strength of the black market, but um, what is the culture in terms of purchasing from the black market, right? So if you look at you know Ontario, um, Ontario has a very well-established black market and people don't mind purchasing you know, from online illegal sources or wherever, right? So what happens is the price competition is quite brutal for cannabis in Canada. And they really, if you look now, they're selling, you know, retail prices at four or $5 a gram for the, for the, you know, the, the cheapest product. Um, so they're really trying to compete with the black market in Illinois. You know, they have limited supply, but also they're not, they don't need to compete with the black market. People are happy to line up and pay rather than go to the black market. They're selling grams for $20 US. So the price is like five to six times what you're getting in Canada right now. And it'll come down. It's not going to stay there forever. Um, But it just shows you why it's such a good market for the operators, why they can actually make good returns on that in that market. Yeah, for sure. And And it makes sense, right? So... Limited license state, that is like the biggest, biggest thing. Um, the rollout, the type of rollout they have, um, and retail stores seem to be key, at least pre-COVID. We'll see what happens after. Mm-hmm. Uh, and availability of product. And and then... That's so been a big not just, for a lot of markets. Sorry, that's... Totally, yeah. totally, totally. And not just the supply, but the type of products you get, right? So, Abby, as you always like to say... In Illinois, when they went wreck, they had they had all the products. You could buy a vape, a gummy, flour, right? Right. Whereas Canada had a very limited rollout, mm-hmm. right? So giving the people what they want, right? And then lastly, just the regulation, red tape, and taxes. Like the U.S. is just very naturally uh, hands off when it comes to these things, and Canada is very hands on, which is which is you know not good for businesses. Makes it a lot harder to operate. Yeah. It's true. It's true. And I think you raised a lot of good points there with the barriers to entry and um, product availability and, you know, just overall, just uh, um, what do you call it? Uh, catering to whatever to consumer demand. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And, and, and that's so those are the kind of elements that I think make a good long term investment in the cannabis space. And a lot of them have nothing to do with the company, but the market that you're in mm-hmm. and the dynamics of the business that you're in. Right. Whereas, you know, if you see some of these uh, long term factors, like, you know, if they change the licensing regime in Florida, for example, after this, this Florida grown case, um, that might change how you look at your valuation of the company and suddenly it's less valuable. Right. So that's something to think about and look at. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, I know we're coming to the end here, Abby, but uh, and any closing thoughts you want to provide on, on sort of, the trading versus the investing. 
Yeah, like short-term trading versus long-term investing. I would always say you need a healthy mix of both. Um, look, I fully understand the Warren Buffett strategy, but not all of us have $130 plus billion to work with. For some of us who are working with our own personal capital, you need to be very dynamic and you need to be agile, right? The fact that we are smaller retail investors affords us the luxury to be nimble. When we exit a position, we don't move the stock in most cases, as long as, you know, it's like a large great stock. And so with that, I mean, take that to your advantage, right? Like, um, don't, don't shut out technical analysis just because you're like, I'm, I'm a fundamentalist and I have to be a fundamentalist all the time. It's like, no, you don't. Right. I have that attitude as well. Uh, and don't be a technician just for the sake of being a technician, right? You need to invest in solid companies and not stocks, but you can use indicators for stocks to know whether, you know, this is a good buying opportunity. Is it a good selling opportunity? Maybe I should take some profits off the table. And always, right. always, always, when you have an entry point, have an exit strategy. Think about when you want to get out. Nobody does that, right? Everybody does all this analysis for when they want to buy the stock, but they're just like, oh, I want to make as much money as possible. It's like, no, that's not, that's not the point. Obviously, it's like, obviously every, every stock would be great if you could do that, but you should have like, okay, great. I've made 10%. Let me take this 10% and get out, you know? Yeah. Like what we talk about the sell discipline, right? Exactly. And so just to, to wrap up the point is, you know, when I think about short-term and long-term, I, I guess, because there's so much uncertainty in this industry, that's why I think you need to have a little bit of the trading, right? Like I never mm-hmm. want to buy something just because I think it's going to go up because I don't want to get stuck holding a dog, right? I don't want to get stuck holding a MedMen or an acreage or something like that, right? Um, so I'd rather buy the stuff I really like and wouldn't mind holding long term, right? Like like the True Leaves, you know, the LHS, the Medifarm, those kind of guys. Mm-hmm. But if I catch a rip... If I catch a good, you know, pop, you know what? It's okay to sell and take some profit. And given how volatile the sector is, you could very easily have a chance to buy it back at, at you know, at a lower value, right? So, right. Um, you know, the, the trick is trying to figure out how to balance those two, right? So, uh, look, I, I mean, I think that's enough for today. Um, I think the big takeaway from what I got from Warren Buffett and the AGM was that, uh, you know, he's being patient. I think you should be patient too. Um, and I think there's a lot of opportunities that might present themselves, you know, in the next six months to a year, depending on how things play out. For sure. So there you go, guys. CIN podcast at gmail.com. Until next time. This podcast is a general communication and entertainment being provided for informational purposes only. It is educational in nature and not designed to be a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan, feature, or other purposes. Any examples used in this podcast are generic, hypothetical, and for entertainment purposes only. None of Cannabis Investing Network or its affiliates are suggesting that the listener or any other person take a specific course of action or any action at all. Communications such as this are not impartial and are provided in connection with advertising and marketing of products and services. Prior to making any investment or financial decision, an investor should seek individualized advice from from a personal financial, legal, tax, and other professional advisor that take into account all of the particular facts and circumstances for an investor's own situation. By listening to this communication, you agree with the intended purpose described earlier. Opinions and statements of financial market trends that are based on current market conditions constitute our judgment and are subject to change without notice. We believe the information provided here is reliable, but should not be assumed to be accurate or complete. The views and strategies described may not be suitable for all investors.